because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter, at bballimmersion, or on Instagram, at basketballimmersion, to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Denver Nuggets assistant coach Ryan Saunders to the basketball podcast. Ryan Saunders is assistant coach for the Denver Nuggets and former head coach for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Ryan has also served as assistant coach with the Washington Wizards and Minnesota Timberwolves. He's the son of longtime NBA coach Flip Saunders. He played basketball at the University of Minnesota. In 2019, Saunders was promoted to interim head coach of the Timberwolves and became the youngest head coach in the NBA for the 2018-19 season. In June 2022, the Denver Nuggets hired Saunders as an assistant coach under Michael Malone, where this past season, he became an NBA champion. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Awesome to have you here. And uh, magical year, coach. Congrats on the championship. Talk to us about what made this team special in terms of how they played and uh, how they came together. Yeah. Well, a lot of things made them special. Really, you can start with some individual players and Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and just the way the whole group was, what they were comprised of as, as a team. They all complemented each other in an unbelievable way. I've really never been a part of, this is my 13th year in the NBA, and I've never been a part of a locker room where everybody was overly willing to give up something for them of themselves for the, the greater good of the team. And uh, it was just really special to be a part of and, and to be able to not just witness that, but but really feel it on, on a daily basis. And that's something that no one can ever take away from champion. And I'm super thankful that I was able to be a part of that group this last year. It's pretty cool, no doubt. And uh, you talked to us a little bit. What are some visible signs of people sacrificing for others? Obviously, the old adage you give when you give, you receive. Yeah. What are some actual visible signs of that that you see within a locker room like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you hear a lot of things in sports. You hear people talk about, we want to be more about actions over words, or we want to be more about the doing than the saying. And sometimes it's, those don't even, those things don't even need to be said on a championship team. They're just done. And uh, I think a great example of that is a guy like Aaron Gordon, who the level that he has come in the league with of, of skill and uh, what he, he was has been able to do, he really just gives himself up for the group and does things that others maybe can do, but also allows others to focus on more on maybe it's the scoring load, or maybe it's just specifically defending things of that nature. He was just really kind of the heart and soul of our team. And he was just a great example, a living example every, every day of just approaching the game, approaching the work with a professional uh, mindset to help the team. So you've been in the NBA a long time and been around the game even longer mm-hmm. with your dad and everything. So you've been around a lot of two-player type of actions that have been pretty beautiful and pretty special. So if you talk about Murray and Jokic and you talk yeah. about all those other players you've been around like that, that have had that synergy, what are some things that stand out in terms of those unseen hours for them to yeah. develop that synergy? Yeah, well, I mean, not just the individual talent, but I think it's the fact that guys like that, when they are unbelievably talented, they don't cheat getting from point A to point Z by just trying to skip steps. And and I, I use that kind of, I phrase it in that sense of 
Jamal does a great job. He doesn't get enough credit for being a guy that the way he sets his defender up. Nicola, he's so great at angles. He's so great at his timing. I mean, he's such an unbelievable passer. His timing of how he can hand the ball off and create space, not just for his teammate, but he's able to roll in a way that the defender has to has to make a choice. Are you going to, going to guard a guy like Jamal Murray or, or are you going to guard a guy like Nikola Jokic? And I've always been a big fan of getting your best, it sounds simple, but getting your best two players on a clear side of the floor and, and letting them work. And it's, it, it was fun to watch up close as that's something the Stanford Nugget team has been doing for so long. Coach Malone, David Adelman, these guys who have been here for a long time. It's just been, been a great synergy. And I think that's something that was something that should be looked at as a real positive in the NBA. The fact that not a lot of teams have that so much as a lot of turnover. This team has had great success by just really sticking with a plan, um, sticking to it, and just focusing on, on getting better on a daily basis. So when it comes to a two-man game, I mean, I've seen, seen some really good ones but seeing what those two were able to do in the, the NBA Finals was remarkable. And to see it up close was, you can't help it, but just smile a little bit. Because as much as coaches, you, you want to think you have a huge out, impact on the game, on the outcome of the game. When you have guys like that, it, it makes your life a lot easier. Absolutely. We'd all love that and make all of our jobs easier. And talk, talk to us a little bit. How much of that is player-led versus coach-led in terms of identifying some of those angles and working on some of those synergies? At this point in their career, obviously very experienced players. Yeah. Are, are you cueing things to bring to their attention or is it more them cueing the things to each other? Coach and David, David Allman, who does a lot with our offense, they, they always put forth you know, great plans on, on a daily basis by whether it's showing clips. For those who, who might not know the NBA, the season does get very long. And the days, they, they really just keep kind of piling up and you, you got to be smart with what you do you want to teach, you want to continue to improve, but you also understand that availability is the greatest attribute you can have. And so with that comes a lot of film study, comes a lot of walkthroughs. We do a good amount, amount of those types of things through the playoffs. And so with, with coaches, yeah, we're always trying to help find an edge with these guys, help give them any type of edge they can have. But just in terms of their intelligence, it's Nicola, the, the things that he sees, it's really incredible. The passes, everybody sees the passes he makes on highlight reels, but those are also the way he can make those passes is by how he sets his defender up maybe two or three plays prior. And we might be setting up a, a defender from the corner prior by looking a guy off or making a pass, you know, three straight times just to try to set up a back, a back cut on the fourth time. So I'd say it's a combination of both. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of, of a, a championship level team is that everybody just willing, being willing to work together. And this group had that this last year. Well, and, and to highlight something, I mean, you mentioned obviously Coach Malone and Adelman and what they do and you're running the defense. And I saw you the day before a game basically put in a dribble handoff type of plan for defending dribble handoffs. And I think what's surprising to people from the outside, if they don't know, is how quickly players can pick that up. Oh, yeah. Like you taught it and then they were doing it the next game. And I don't know if it's a change or whatever. I can't remember the exact plan, but mm -hmm. it's impressive, isn't it? How quickly they can get it. Oh, it, it really is. And every team is different. Every season takes on a life of its own and every team takes on a personality of its own. We were very fortunate to have a group of guys on that team who not, were not just intelligent basketball players, but were able to receive information, 
and then implement the information and maybe the, a change that we were looking to make on the fly, which made our life easier, not easy, but easier. And But when I've been a part of some young teams. I was a part of some developing teams in Washington, D.C. and in Minnesota. And hey, it might, it might not be as quick, but you're trying to still get to the answer, the root of the problem. It just might not take it might not take as long with more veteran team, which we had. So our guys did a great job of really just being able to implement these game plans throughout the, that long playoff run. I think you're speaking to a lot of challenges coaches have in terms of those one or two players that don't get it as quickly. So talk to us with your experience. What are some ways to be able to get them extra help to be able to get them to understand it? Yeah, I'm always I'm always somebody whenever I, I get to talk to someone like you who's you know trying to grow the game or just talk about the game. I always like to make it clear. I don't have all the answers, so I'm still trying to search for that answer too. And and yeah, I'd like to think that, that none of us do, but we're all trying to get better with that. Uh, but something that I do feel has helped me maybe reach some of those guys is, is really one, trying to find the way they learn. And whether that be, do they learn by seeing it through, through just a set a video clip? Do they learn from seeing it? Can they, can they read a diagram? Is that better for them? Walk, physically walking them through a diagram or are they the type of player that needs to be on the court and have that muscle memory? I think everybody, everybody's different. And that's our challenge as coaches. And that's why I think the summers are so important to try to get around players, to try to learn some of those things, especially when you have a, have a new group of guys and you want to try to learn how, how they learn, but then you also need, need to try to learn how they how they can be coached. Some guys are used to maybe tougher coaching. Some guys maybe need, need, need you to put an arm around their shoulder. And that's a challenge too, because you never, you always want to, it should always come back to the player. I think we're all just trying to help the player in the end. We're all going to help each other, but we really need to take the time and there's resources out there for it. Something that has helped me a lot through COVID. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Eric Thomas, who is a speaker and does a lot of different, different types of kind of workshops on what what type of leader are you? What what's your communication style? I actually was able to have our players when I was the coach in Minnesota take these kind of little tests to find out what their communication style was, which helped me. So trying to find any type of edge you can and you can find not just to try to help you win games, but more so try try to help you get through to an individual. And it's not always going to work. So I, I guess I think as coaches, we need to give ourselves a little bit of grace, something I continue to try to work on when maybe it doesn't work. But with that, though, we can look at it as a failure or we can look at it as something like, hey, it didn't work for us this time. Let's What didn't work? The fact that we weren't able to get a breakthrough to try to avoid this for the next time we encounter a player like this. I think is really important. Yeah, great stuff. And we'll all be searching Dr. Eric Thomas now. That's great. Yeah, I yeah. And we talk a lot about moving from assistant to head coach, but not probably enough about moving from head to assistant coach. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of the insights into what made you successful making this transition? Yeah, and I mean, I think I think success can be defined in a lot of different ways, and, and I think it should be defined in, in a different way for everybody. And simply, my goal—I've known Coach Malone for a long time, and he's been a good friend. And when, when he presented me with this opportunity, I thought it was a perfect fit—not just to work with somebody I was I was close with, but I felt very fortunate to have an opportunity to work with this type of team, with this type of organization. And going from being a, a head coach to an assistant, I think you kind of learn. I was a head coach in Minnesota for nearly three years and you kind of learn what you would you would want in an assistant your next time around if there is a next time around and you try to be that 
And um, I think the, the biggest thing I would say is trying to find things that can be taken off the head coach's plate. So wh whatever you can do to be somebody to not just not cause problems, but also put out maybe fires before they get to a head coach, because a head coach, whether it be college, MBA, high school, whatever, whatever level you're at, I've heard people say, Hey, I'm just a high school coach. I know you're, you've been an MBA head coach. And I always stop them with that because it, it doesn't matter whatever level you're at in terms of being a coach, you're going to have a heavy burden on your shoulders. And if we have assistance that can help take some of that load off, we're all going to be better for it. And I think that that's really important. So my main goal was really just come in and try to do whatever I could to help Coach Malone and help the organization. I mean, that's, and I, I think that everybody should look at it that way. It might be tough sometimes for, for folks. I know everybody wants to work their way up in a lot of ways, but I've always been a believer and kind of learned that from, from my dad is if you just take care of what you're you're doing in that moment, everything else is going to take care of itself, whatever whatever that, that means, whatever that looks like for your future. And once again, I know I've said a number of times, I, I use the word fortunate a lot because working in the NBA, I feel very fortunate to be working in the NBA, but also to be working um, in an organization like this too. And, and I think it's when you when you continue to say that you're, you feel fortunate, you feel it even more and you feel even more in the trenches in, in those moments. So that's something I, I try to say over and over on, on a daily basis. Gratitude's a great thing. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I know the staff is tremendous staff you're a part of and a very collaborative staff. So maybe yeah. give some insights, like before you take something, say to coach Malone, is it, is it a collaboration? Like you have an idea, do you run it through your other, you know, colleagues first before it goes to coach Malone? Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to describe because it's, it's such a, it, you, you said it and you've been around our group a little bit. Um, it is such a collaborative group. And I mean, when I say there's, there's no ego on the staff, I mean, really, it's everybody. I haven't seen one person ever think that this should be brought to, I should bring this to the decision maker just because it was my idea. It's all, hey, whatever's going to help this team. And so there's plenty of times where we bounce, bounce ideas off each other. Our, our officer, offices were tight quarters in the, in the ball arena. So we bounce ideas off each other. But there's no set protocol in terms of where it's, hey, just because so-and-so might be running the offense and so-and-so might be running the defense, everything should go through them. But it's all, it's all as a group. And decisions, were, that's something that Coach Malone, he does an unbelievable job of managing a staff and letting everybody have a voice and everybody feel like their voice is heard. But then also being able to be somebody that makes a, a solid decision. So we're all on the same page going out of that room. So there's healthy dialogue, healthy discussion. And it's, it's just been a really enjoyable experience to have those different types of ideas because we got a lot of guys I mean Popeye Jones played in the NBA Ryan Bowen played in the NBA I mentioned David Elman Charles Klask is unbelievably smart with how, how he uses um, an analytical mind in, in approaching the game John Beck has been doing player development we got a lot of guys that have been coach have coached overseas or, or came from overseas so just the diversity of thought is is really really special in Denver yeah, it must be fun to be a part of that. And uh, yeah, I'm curious from the organization or from Coach Malone, I, I, we mentioned you focused on the defense and clearly you can focus on anything, but what was the decision to be able to get you involved more on the defensive side? 
I mean, it's kind of just, it's kind of just what was open. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it just works out that way. And I think coach has always been great about when we, when I was the coach in Minnesota, he and I would talk also in that time as it was my first head coaching job. But he, and, and I do remember him always bringing up, I, I don't like to look at coaches as just guys who specialize in one thing, offense, defense, whatever it may be. We're, we're basketball coaches and whatever the job calls us to do, we're, we're willing to do that. And I think being son of, sons of coaches as well, we understand that. And whatever, hey, whatever the job calls for, if it's going to help the group, let's do it. That's kind of that's kind of the, the mindset, I guess. How fun. Different eras, but you both grew up in the game and around oh, yeah. in that way. That's so cool. That's pretty cool to be able to share those stories, no doubt. And uh, yeah, I, you kind of referenced it a little bit. So I'm just curious, like I'm sure you've given thought to it. You get another head coaching opportunity for you. What looks different and what looks the same for you? Yeah, yeah and it's it's something that I don't really think think about much in a sense of I'm, I'm I've always I mentioned it earlier. My father always talked about being uh, a believer and hey, wherever you're planted, you got to continue to try to grow and, and bloom there and whatever that looks like. And so I'm, I'm super happy here working, working with coach and working with this group and, and just everything we're doing. But you also, as coaches, we're always trying to get better. So with that, you got to, I guess, look at your past and look at things that maybe worked or look at things that maybe didn't work and say there have been moments this year where I tell myself, hey, I probably would do this different had I known this when I was in Minnesota a couple of years prior or I was on the, I was on the right track with, with this, I guess, whether it be just something in terms of culturally trying to implement as a offensively, defensively, whatever, whatever that may be. But I think that the biggest thing for me, I guess, moving forward would be trying to make sure you don't try to micromanage every little thing. And I think that a lot of times coaches you know, might try to do that within their first job, but you also need, need to know, hey, you can pass things off to others because there's a lot of talented individuals in the, in that building. And I think you, you kind of learn what can maybe ta- be taken off your plate and what you maybe need to focus on the bigger picture things, but then also focus on the relationship aspect of it all too with players. So I think you're, you're always checking boxes. You're always saying, hey, I could do this better. I could, I was on the right track with this. But in the end, I think it's always going to come back to, hey, how can we help these players? And how can we build a better relationship with these players? And I have learned some of those things within this last year because, you know, coaches, he's been around these guys for, for so long, this continuity, he's able to coach them hard, coach them in a way with love. And then at the end of the day, always get through to them too, because they know he cares. And so you continue to try to pick up on those things and, and we're always learning as coaches. Absolutely. And maybe let's focus a little bit on some of the defensive stuff since you spent so much time and obviously Denver's defense was well talked about this year and the key to your success. So maybe uh, first, let's, what does accountability on defense look like and sound like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for our, for our group, it always starts out with our communication. We talk about accountability. You want to be accountable in your commands. And I say that we want, we always speak early, loud, continuous, whatever, whatever command you're calling, whether it's in the ball screen, whether it's in catch and shoot action, or it's something off the ball, trying to defend penetration, then, then we're getting into rotations. We want you to say these commands three times, early, loud, continuous. And I'm sure you hear that a lot through different programs, and whether it be college, whether it be MBA. But for us, it really is a, a staple just because we do want to talk early. We, you, teams pro- or people probably saw in that Miami series, 
Um, the way that team was slipping out of ball screens took a little while to get used to with, with the small smalls. They have great shooters there. So the way they were sometimes setting, the way they were sometimes just giving you a little tap, and the way sometimes they weren't even coming close, they were just slipping out of it. We need to figure out our communication and, and strengthen our communication even into June and something that we have been working on through the whole year. So in terms of accountability, that was big for us. And then we talk a lot about accountability of, hey, we want to defend with the idea of you don't have help, but understanding that, that you do have help, if that makes sense. So defend, if we can defend it at the point of attack, that helps the rest of our defense. We're not getting the rotations. We're not having to scramble. We're not having to get be, be at a disadvantage at the rim um, with a small trying to box out a big or a big having to guard a dynamic small on the perimeter. So we want to contain it at the point of attack. And that just means everybody doing their job. And we had we had guys that that just really did a great job of that all season long. And some of the through the year, the season can kind of be broken down a lot of times into quarters or big chunks. And for part of the year, we we defended at a really, really high level. Part of the year we maybe didn't defend at a high level, but fortunate for us at the at the end of the year, when we really needed it, it came through. And that's just a big credit to the players with this group. So communication, you brought that up. I mean, I know at your level, one of the hardest things to be able to deal with, and I'm assuming you have a plan for it, but it is this decision between, you mentioned the slip, the ghost, the set, the touch. I mean, there's all these variations of someone setting a screen now, especially on the ball. So is there a preferred mechanism that you can give us insights in to help us understand how we get our players to communicate some of those differences? Yeah, and, and I think that it, the great thing about basketball is I don't know if there's a right right answer. I, I just know that there is probably a right answer for your team. Fortunate for us with our group, veteran group group of guys, we had an opportunity to communicate whether we were hey, switching the slip out or the ball screen or if we were going to be square with the ball screen or, or slip out. Um, but we also had the ability to go into, into a game and say, hey, no matter what it was, a ball screen or a slip out, we were just going to switch it um, just to eliminate any type of indecision. And that can be based on your environment too. Hey, maybe you're you're playing in Miami and it's a loud, loud environment where your verbal communication, we like to talk a lot about nonverbal communication as well, using, hey, pointing, pointing your, your switches, pointing your, if, it, if it's a late switch, one of those, any of those situations, but maybe you adapt to your environment and you say, hey, just to eliminate any type of gray area, this action, not not necessarily the set. We talk more about actions. This action, all right, we're just going to defend it where we're just switching everything here. So I, I guess the right answer is that we were able to adapt a little bit to it. And I think that that's something that teams that you're going to find, whether it be a young team, maybe maybe you just need one set way of defending something, or whether or maybe it's a more veteran team, you have a lot of four-year starters or, or fifth-year fifth year seniors that can kind of handle more on a game-to-game basis. And then you find your answer there. So we mentioned the the ball screen, defending that. Uh, What is one of the other toughest things to defend in the NBA beyond personnel, obviously? Yeah. Yeah, well, and and everybody's terminology is different. And just just a couple actions that I think not just us, but everybody in the NBA talks about going on a daily basis, 82 regular season games a year. You game planning 82 times, but you're pretty much always going to talk about some form of the delay action or the five out of the open action. And most teams are going to run some variation of a pin down DHO. 
And a lot of times that's that's a problem for NBA defenses because the pin down is occurring as there's action on the other side. Therefore, your low man might not be in a position to be a help helper on a roller. And then the pin down guy might have been a Kevin Durant or um, one of these knockdown shooters that you're having to get into a single side tag situation. And then you look at a lot of teams in the NBA, they have four shooters out there now, four shooters and a, and a roller. And then you put a, put the ball in a really dynamic ball handler's hands like we see in the West on a nightly basis. You know, you look at some of the guys that we face in the, in the playoffs, whether it be Anthony Edwards, whether it be Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, Jimmy Butler, LeBron James. I mean, you can just kind of go on the list of these dynamic ball handlers who are so smart and they're able to kind of pick you apart if you're not firm in your communication, firm in accepting your commands and then detailed in how you're going to um, sit down and guard guard these these dynamic players and, and be in, in help situations for these rollers, they can pick you apart. So the pin down DHO and then the ghost cut. And, and I say ghost cut out of the corner as a, a high pick and roll, you know, can also be a side pick and roll, step up pick and roll, but that opposite corner man cutting as you're tagging has the guys tagging it a hard roller. If you're more up at the level of the screen, that's a hard one to guard because then you're probably getting the rotation because that next man is going to have to drop, and then that guy guarding the ball is going to have to have to rotate over to the next shooter, and you're basically in scramble mode at that point. But I think something that we got very good with uh, as a team is being able to scramble up, scramble out of those situations and try trying to contain late into the shot clock and understanding that, hey, we're probably going to have to defend 20 seconds or 20 seconds out of 24, um, which, you know, takes a lot for players to really be be focused for that, that extended period of time during a possession. Hey, coach, brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you know which players should be taking what kind of shots? An analytics system like Hoopsalytics can help your team make better shot selection decisions. You can track every kind of shot each player takes, where the shots come from, rate the shot quality, track if the shot was contested, and see the results. For example, see which players are taking mid-range floaters and measure the results versus catch-and-shoot jumpers. As an added bonus, Hoopsalytics shot charts are fully interactive, so you can filter by shot distance, shot type, or even specific areas of the floor. Then watch video clips of all those shots or see the points per shot. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. Man, not fun to be a defensive coordinator in the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> so most nights it's not. A lot of talent, a lot of talent on the offensive end. <laughs> well, you can play the perfect defense and it doesn't matter sometimes. That's that's the thing that obviously we respect so much about the different players in the NBA. Just incredible talent. What percentage or like you've been around obviously a lot of different uh, defenses throughout your NBA career. So give us a perspective and there's probably not a specific answer, but like yeah. the percentage of the defensive system that would be in place regardless of your personnel is there a base that would be there regardless of personnel and then you adapt it for your personnel yeah and, and I, it, it, that's a great question and i think that's once again an evolving answer and i'd say you probably have anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of your base defense and then you're probably adjusting obviously the rest of that whether it be 20 to 40 percent you're probably adjusting your levels of 
of your um, pick and roll coverage. Hey, do you have a big that's a rim protecting big that you want to keep in a drop, a drop kind of hovering around the restricted, trying to force teams into a contested two? And then with that though, do you have a guy that you can put on the ball who's a, a bigger guard, a bigger guard or a bigger wing that's tougher to screen that can that's physical that can fight through a screen to get a great rear view contest or that big who's at the rim? So you're kind of you're kind of looking at going to be involved in most of those those pick and roll actions, I think, because we're seeing there's some nights you're going to see over 100 and you know 15 pick and rolls a game in the NBA. So everything kind of comes back to that. That's the heart of your defense, and so you're you're going to adjust those levels, and then based on based on your personnel, I believe. But then you're also going going to adjust. Are you going to be a switching team off the ball, or are you going to be a team that hey stays more? You don't want to call it vanilla, but more just solid. Hey, we're we're up. We're in protection. We're fighting through screens. We're either gapping or we're chasing. We can top lock as well, but we're not going to be a team that's going to get cut up just by kind of point switching. And I think it, it also in the NBA, you need to have a little bit of both, be able to to adjust to certain teams where, hey, we are just going to try to switch everything here, switch on and off the ball. But you also need, need to have your base defense too. So um, you're going to adjust your scheme a little bit based on your personnel, but then you're also going to adjust your scheme um, and your base defense based on your opponent on a nightly basis. But the tough thing for that is practice time. You want, like any coach, you want practice time throughout the season to be able to implement these new ideas and these new things. And unfortunately for us, there isn't a lot of practice time because you're playing four you games in five nights. Yeah, yeah. So if you can teach it off film, more, t- more power to you. That's great. I mean, coach, I already know people are going to be take, listening to this multiple times to get some of the insights. This is awesome. Thank you. And, and what kind of you stimulated me to think about it and to say a bad defender, that's so unfair in the NBA relative to being one of the best players in the world. There's less effective defenders. And I know I get this question a lot from the high school. Yeah. So I've got a player that's not as effective defensively. How can I individually help them first be better defensively? Yeah. One, one I mean, I, I'd say the challenge, challenging of that individual first is important. That, that's the first thing we should look at. Hey, can we challenge them to do things harder, uh, do things smarter, and do things with more intention? That, that, that would be, I guess, my first piece of advice in that sense. And if they're, if they're doing everything to the best of their abilities, they're, if they're able to understand the game plan, but maybe they're just not able to implement it. Maybe they're, they just don't have that lateral foot speed or they have an injury they're dealing with, something that then we need to go back to the drawing board. And then I think that's where coaching and us trying to help these guys comes into play. You might be in a situation where in the NBA, and, and I'm sure a lot of people can see it, but if, if somebody's listening to this and they haven't noticed it, if you watch a game and, and you see a quote-unquote bad defender or somebody who's known to not be a bad defender and they're going against a, a really, really potent offensive player, dynamic offensive player, there are possessions where you will see that player get called up into a ball screen six times. And and that's because maybe they're they're just showing to try to try to stay off that offensive player. Maybe they're blitzing to try to stay off that offensive player. But whatever they're doing, they're trying not to switch onto that player. But the NBA is it's a it's an unforgiving league where they will just continue to pick on you and pick on you until until they get the matchup they want. And we face it. Every team faces it. 
So you, you try to find ways. And I mentioned it. Hey, maybe you're going to show. And I know I'm talking a lot about ball screens, but we just see so many of them. Maybe you're going, you're going to show to try to keep the maintain the matchup. Maybe you're just going to trap and get trapped with that poor defender to get the ball out of the dynamic offensive player's hands. Then you get into rotations. Make the ball find somebody. The NBA, a lot of guys can beat you, but maybe you're going to pick your poison and you don't want this certain all-NBA caliber player to be the guy to beat you. You want to be some somebody that's maybe spotted up in the corner. So you try to search for those answers too, but once again, probably not a right answer, right blanket answer. It's going to be whatever the right answer is for your individual team, your individual player, and that could also be looking at zone defense. Maybe you're, you're just going to try to play play 2-3 or play 3-2 and, and hide this player at the bottom and have him, him or her be a guy or, or girl that just runs the dynamic offensive player off the line and then you're in the scramble situation if they're closing out to the corner those types of things are things to think about so many things to think about and uh, <laughs> your, your dad was famously known a little bit for some of the early matchup zone type stuff mm-hmm. and you've been around it along and now zone is again definitely in vogue in terms of some of the solution-based things are there any insights into running zone versus modern offenses yeah i mean it's uh I don't think a zone can be used exclusively. The team that that probably uses it the most and they do an unbelievable job is Miami. And you can tell they, they work on it and they spend a lot of time on it. So like anything, you, you, get, you have to pick uh, what you want to spend time on. And through a season might not be enough time time to really work on all the intricacies of the zone when the ball goes to the high post, when the ball you know goes from top of the key to the wing. Are you bumping? Are you not bumping? How are you handling pick and rolls? So when we talk about, I guess, the some of the details to it all, I, I've always liked to think that you should try to keep things as simple as possible within the zone for players if you're not spending 50% of your defensive time on that zone. So the norm is it in the NBA? I would assume that's the norm. Yeah. 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 I think I I would say that's pretty, pretty much the norm with the exception of maybe one or two teams that might spend a little more time than that, but everybody's going to try to get that ball to the middle of the floor. They're trying to create an overload situation. Are you, are you, then you have to make the decision. Are you going with cutters? Are you, are you a group that are you bumping on the wings? Are you more of a kind of, I guess, drop back and, and protect zone? Or are you trying to extend the zone similar to a team like Miami and force turnovers? I think you, you, you can pick things up from any level. I've watched a number of things from colleges and, and even high schools of the way they handle. Granted, the zone rules are different. Uh, the three, three seconds in the paint rules are different. We have defensive three second, which is three, three seconds, which you know can be an issue. But they're always going to still try to exploit that that bad defender, quote unquote bad defender. They'll try to find him in the zone as well. It's amazing. I mean, we all watched the World Cup and you saw how many times different players were hunted in the World Cup. Oh, yeah. Even yep. With the FIBA rules. So it's not exclusive to the NBA rules. And No, it's it's not. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, to a lot of times you see narratives of this player that might be a you think is a great defensive player, yet he's being called up every time and picking roles. Or a player that you might think is not a great defensive defensive player, and he's not getting called up at all because he's six foot ten, and teams don't want to have to deal with that length when the ball handler might be a six foot one guy. So there's there's a lot of different things to take into consideration, I guess, on the offensive end too, when trying to attack matchups defensively. 
So I'm curious and maybe more offense, but I'm curious, do certain players on a roster, like, do they have certain matchups that they really like to hunt based on, again, some type of history or some type of experience with certain players? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Some of it's player led. It is big time, big time. And but contrary to what some people might might believe, probably not your listeners here, here, Chris, as I know this is a educated audience on basketball immersion, but in the NBA, we, we don't just roll the balls out there and tip it off at 7 or 7.30 p.m. There's a lot of prep time that goes into that. And that's not just on the coaching end. That's on the player end, too. And something that's not talked about enough is, is the detail that a lot of these guys watch film, watch upcoming matchups, speak how they speak to the video coordinators on, hey, I'd like to see so-and-so, his last 100 pick and rolls that he's guarded. Things like that. They get that film on their iPad, then on the plane to watch, or they're watching it before the game, and, and they're talking to their teammate, talking to their locker mate, the guy that's next to them, on how they're going to exploit that matchup. And I, I think that's something that this team has been so good good with for so many years. And, and a lot of that goes to Coach Malone for giving these guys that confidence and to allow them to do that and make those decisions on the fly. But this isn't football where we can call a play every single time or call a defensive scheme every t- single stoppage, every single time a play is about to be ran. This is a free-flowing game. And so a lot of it is on the players. And when you got guys who are who care and guys who you know, are intelligent with how they study the game, you're gonna you're gonna have a much better chance of coming out on top at the end. And we had that this year. And but like you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the question, a lot of that is player led because it's just in the free free flow of the game. That's great. And I, I mean, you've referred to this many times, and I, I think this has always been part of good coaches, but I think even more so in the modern game, this concept of too many coaches want defense to be just black and white. That yeah. doesn't exist anymore, really, does it? In no, no. No, I mean, the, the game, you, you'd love it to be black and white where there's always a right right way of, of doing it and a wrong way of doing it. And like, hey, we said we were going to chase this this guy every single time down the floor because he's a knockdown shooter. You didn't chase him this time, and that's why he got an open three. Well, you, you probably did. You, maybe you didn't chase him because the screen was set you know, near the hash towards half court. Then you got to be a basketball player and play in the gray area and understand that the location – the location of the screen, and then also the personnel is going to determine your route. That's something we like to say a lot when we talk about the deeper the screen, the more likely you're going to have to chase, even if the guy is considered a gap player. Um, but if it's higher up the floor, even if the guy is considered a chase player, hey, you might gap to be able to get back in front because he's not in the scoring area yet. Um, so the game is played in, in, in a gray area, and that's where confidence both ways has to come into play, I believe. Confidence from the players in, in us that we're going to not ask them to do something that we know is impossible, but then also the confidence that, that we're not just going to be on them just because they didn't defend it the way we said they were going to defend it in the game plan. We have to tell them they're to be basketball players as well. And then we have the confidence in them to make those decisions on the court too. And then, and then we can yell at them after if it doesn't work. <laughs> of course, we always got that as a fallback. Right. Right? Yeah. And you've got veteran players, obviously different guys that they're going to be able to solve problems a little bit more, but how do you create that environment for some of your new players or newcomers mm-hmm. or rookies in the league to allow them to be able to solve problems and give them that permission and freedom to be able to do that? Is there a certain environment that you need to create? to be able to allow yeah. them to do that? 
yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll use the term you can have your per you, you have to earn your permit first to be able to kind of make those gray area decisions. Then you then you earn your license. Wow. And like like Contavious Caldwell Pope, who's even before last year was a championship level level player. He earned the license to be able to make some of those calls on the fly. A guy like Christian Brown, as the season went on, he was able to earn his permit quick and then earn his license pretty quick, too. Because one, he showed the level of commitment to his preparation, but also he showed the ability to be able to do those things and think through those situations on, on the fly. So it, it's about it's about giving players the I guess the 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 room to grow and to make those decisions, but also giving them the proper corrections as well after the fact when when those decisions on the on the fly might not be ones that that we feel are best for our team moving forward. And then you kind of see as time goes on, they grow and grow into themselves and they find their voice a little bit on, hey, this this works for me or or I don't feel comfortable doing this. And to me and everybody's different, but that's the signs of of a coach, not just a good coach, but a coach who's willing to be a good partner with your players too is uh, do you take those things into consideration and I do think that's important hearing what the players feel is most comfortable they're most comfortable doing whether it be coverage wise whether it be matchup wise or just defending a, a certain set hey like it, we had plenty of situations in walkthroughs where we go into a walkthrough coaches we felt the best way to defend something was this way and I'm sure if you talk to 29 other um, NBA teams they would tell you they they would handle it a very in a very similar way on a game day uh, a player might bring something up and say and it might be hey I played with this guy we got we gotta send him left or we got we gotta defend the cross screen this way you take those things things into consideration and ultimately at the end of the day but they're the ones on the floor having to execute that game plan so you you try to allow them to do that and give them um, a voice too which is important yeah absolutely great nuggets into solution-based defense there throughout and i'm curious like peel switching is something i'm sure you dove into it you've Mm -hmm. you you obviously know it you maybe to some extent teach it but Mm -hmm. don't see it as much in the nba as probably might thought it might have been when we all studied it a few years back talk to me a little bit about that yeah it's funny you bring that up because that was that was something I remember my dad always used to like, like to talk about going into a um, training camp with the team. And he, he called it a go when you run a go. And he, he always taught it. And like you said, you don't see it a whole lot in the NBA, a little bit. And some guys are, are smart enough. There's a few specific players that come to mind throughout the league that really just do it naturally on their own when they're beat. But, but my dad always liked to teach it in, in a way with those Minnesota teams and that, those Detroit teams that if you were beat, it wasn't part of your set base defense, I guess. But if you were beat, it was something you communicated. And, and that's, to me, that, that, that goes into the same, I guess, the same category of whether it be a late switch or a veer in a pick and roll. Hey, is, are, is the bigs, is he engaged? Is, are the, is the ball handler, does, is he getting downhill with his shoulders full thrust to the basket where you have to get into a, a, a late switch or a veer situation? That's the way I guess I kind of look, I've always kind of looked at a peel switch, but I do think it's something that we'll continue to see more of because there has been success with it overseas. I know there's been a number of college teams that have had success with it and it's, it's still hiding in there. I just don't think it's a full base defense that everybody's gone to yet. 
when you refer to it, I mean, there's just more space to cover in the NBA with that, with the gravity yeah. and the different yeah. types of court. And the college game, it tends to be probably a little more efficient because there's less space. Yeah. So you don't have yeah. to cover it as far, but it is fascinating. That's great that your dad was using that concept way back when. And it just shows you how the game keeps kind of circling back to different mm-hmm. ideas and different it things. Does. Another thing is triple switches and that type of scrams and different yeah. things like that. We're seeing that a little bit more, but I don't think we saw the depth of switching that we probably thought was going to happen either, did we? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I, I do look at, at something like that. Like in through the playoffs, we we did a lot of that. We kind of yeah, went yeah. to a situation where um, Aaron Gordon was our backup five, so we didn't we were able to do more switching. With that, you obviously want to try to get your bigger player as simple as it sounds. Hey, big and little out, and you search for opportunities to scram that little that smaller player to the perimeter, so you can be in a situation to rebound the basketball. And then we just have, like you said, we haven't seen as much as we probably thought we were going to see as it's become more prevalent over these last couple of years. I, I do think you, if if we look hard at it, there are certain actions in the NBA like that pin DHO. If you're within a switching group. So when I say switching group, I think most teams will identify that these these six guys are part of their switching group for the whole year. So what I mean by that is if they're if any if they're involved in any actions in terms of pick and rolls, DHOs, they're able to switch it. If you're in a pin DHO with out of the open action, out of the delay action, you you could, you'll see a triple switch a lot of times naturally just based off of the way the guy who's guarding guarding the screener, the way he's going to switch onto the ball. And then the guy who was getting the pin down guy, he's already below um, below the below the screener. Therefore, he has to take the roll to the basket. And then the guy just kind of other guy just kind of peels off to the three point line. So I think there's some actions that you naturally see it. Kind of like a uh, zone concept of bumping almost, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. 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 That's and, cool. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, it is. And it, it takes time to work on. And I think that when you find it in the NBA, especially with timing wise, you learn more. You can learn that you can teach more within player development too. And three-man actions are really prevalent in the NBA. I think that's something that's something that when teams know you're going to switch on or off the ball, they're going to try to Golden State does a great job of putting you in three-man actions, trying to force a miscommunication within that. So it's good to work on those, whether it be just in player development or just in your pre-practice breakdown when you don't have the whole team out there. And there you can kind of work on your triple switches as well, because it is something that I think we're going to continue to see more and more of, though. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's so fun watching uh, the NBA and watching coaches and everyone trying to figure it out because yeah, we're all trying to do the same thing. <laughs> the magnitude of challenges is there for sure. And uh, we, I've talked about this on the podcast before about offense, about, yeah, I think you know, the example went back to OKC with Russell Westbrook, how unique he was as an offensive player. And you take him off the floor and you almost have to run a different offense. Is the same thing apply a little bit defensively with certain players? If they're off the floor, mm. you're doing something completely almost different because that player's not on the floor. Oh, definitely. And I, I think that a, a great example you talk about Oklahoma City was a, that's a great example of Russ during that time. They were they were very different. The Clippers they they were always a team that their bench had they had a full different package of plays than that starting unit. And a lot of times that was when Lou Williams came in the game those guys, but it was, it was very different. Therefore, I think you've had to kind of evolve as a defense of how you're going to defend that type of, I guess, that type of mindset offensively. And then the game's kind of evolved where you don't see a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, big backup centers. More times than not, you're going to see more of a small ball five as a backup. 
And that was more specific to the playoffs, I think, too. Therefore, your defensive package for your first unit could be completely different than your defensive package for your second unit, where your second unit, maybe they're switching one through five in terms of ball screens. And then your first unit, maybe you don't have that capability. So it's different. But I think that can work to your favor as well, where it's a different... It's a different look for the other team's offense, too, or other team's preparation if you're able to defend in a couple of different ways. And once again, to me, that should just go back to do you have that personnel to be able to do that? And if you have, if you have the personnel, though, that you're able just to defend one way, then I think it's important you don't try to reinvent the wheel and don't try to force a square peg into a round hole just because you want to have a diverse defense. You got to play to your players' strengths. Ryan, this has been unbelievable. Your your passion and your knowledge shines through. And I've just loved talking to you so much and hearing your insights on the game. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Chris. Are you ready to take your coaching to the next level? Thousands and thousands of coaches have already benefited from Basketball Immersion's membership community, and you can be next. Join us as an individual coach or take advantage of our exclusive pricing for staff or club members and unlock valuable learning resources with access to cutting-edge basketball and coaching concepts that will save you time and improve your coaching and your players' enjoyment of practices and games. Take advantage of this opportunity today. Go to www.basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.